Hello, and welcome back to Spark. This is your host, Jacob McInnes. I recently sat down with the former U.S. Ambassador to Israel, Dan Shapiro. We talked about his life, the lessons he's learned, and how the U.S.'s foreign policy affects the daily lives of Americans. We hope you enjoy this unique opportunity to hear from one of the world's top policy experts. Let's dive in. So we'll start. Uh, so what drew you to public service in the first place? I grew up in a household where we were told that we had set responsibilities as citizens. Uh, partly that came from a Jewish heritage that uh, talks about trying to improve the world, trying to make, a, make the world a more just place, uh, a more uh, a livable place, a place where your values are, are uh, uh, lived out. Uh, and partly a political family uh, yeah. that really took those uh, duties seriously. Uh, so we were always involved in campaigns. We were always involved in uh, various causes. Uh, and I really took that uh, seriously, that idea that as, a, as an adult uh, or someone making my way in the world, I could try to find a profession that allowed me to uh, improve the world in uh, that area that I was passionate about. Uh, having spent a lot of time uh, traveling in the Middle East, having spent a lot of time in Israel, uh, uh, really having developed a, 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 an expertise in U.S. foreign policy, uh, that was the place I wanted to make the difference, to try to use those tools of foreign policy to make uh, the United States safer, uh, to make our allies safer, especially a close alliance we have with the state of Israel, uh, to uh, strengthen that partnership. Uh, as well as other partnerships in the Middle East, and then, of course, to pursue peace between Israel and its neighbors, especially with the Palestinians. So uh, I came by it honestly, I think, uh, you know, how I was raised uh, and uh, found my way to a profession where hopefully I've been able to make at least some contribution on those uh, on those issues. I'd say so. So you you mentioned uh, gr- your, your life growing up, and you are the son of a novelist and English professor, I understand, right? Yes. And I was doing some research. Have you written any books? Plan on writing any books? Or? <laughs> yeah. It's a, a question that I'm now dealing with. Uh, I finally uh, finished my uh, government service after 20 years and have some time and I'm in a think tank. And I am working on a book on those okay. years. And, uh, you know, I've got other projects as well. So I was originally approached by... Uh, someone with a proposal, well, why don't you hire a ghostwriter? You know, then you can mm-hmm. do your mm-hmm. other work and not worry about actually having to sit down and write the darn book. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I thought to myself, you know, when you grow up in a family where uh, the people write their own books, the, <laughs> my, my father has three or four books to his name as, yeah. a, as, a, as a tenured professor, my mother's a novelist, uh, you can't not write your own book and come home for Thanksgiving. So uh, <laughs> it's, in, it's in progress. Uh, I write a lot. I've published many articles uh, yeah. so now that I have the freedom to publish in my own name, but uh, uh, the longer project is, uh, is underway. Very cool. Transition a little bit here. So... Could you walk us through some of the similarities and differences that exist between doing foreign policy and or national security work for the legislative and executive branches of the U.S. government, respectively? Sure. I've even taught a course at Georgetown on uh, the interplay between the legislative and executive branches and foreign policy. And I've now 
made the crossover two or three times. I started my career on the House Foreign Affairs Committee and then later with Senator Feinstein. Uh, then I worked in the Clinton administration the last two years uh, at the National Security Council under President Clinton, then came back to uh, Congress, uh, worked for Senator Bill Nelson of Florida, and then obviously spent uh, all eight years of the Obama administration in the uh, executive branch. So each time I made that journey across the divide, I sort of became, I think, more appreciative of what each uh, branch uh, does. And I think one has to be sort of clear about this. Uh, the executive branch has far more tools uh, and far more ability to impact and actually implement a foreign policy than the, than the legislative branch does. Uh, the president, of course, is the commander in chief of the armed forces. Uh, there's a State Department with embassies in almost every country, uh, so we have diplomats on the ground. The executive branch is charged with conducting the negotiations that are uh, the way we reach agreements uh, or try to reach agreements with, with countries to uh, expand trade, to uh, end conflicts, to otherwise uh, broaden cooperation into, into multilateral forums as well. Uh, so all of those tools are really the implementing tools of foreign policy. In the legislative branch, Congress has a role, and it's certainly expected to. It has the power of the purse. Uh, so aid programs must be authorized and appropriated by the Congress although they're implemented by the executive branch. Uh, Congress can certainly uh, write into law restrictions on what, uh, the, uh, what the president may do with those aid. Congress can uh, impose sanctions. Uh, again, it has to be negotiated with the president. Uh, and then there's the rhetorical uh, power of Congress. I think we just saw an interesting example of that last week when the House mm -hmm. of Representatives recognized the Armenian genocide for the first time, yep. uh, a very uh, strong uh, uh, statement that was very poorly received in Turkey, and so it will have some impact on our relationship with Turkey. Uh, and so uh, Congress has uh, its tools, but I think one has to be clear that uh, Congress can affect those policies more or less at the margins, whereas the executive branch is the primary uh, executor of the, of the policy, and so if you really want to make the most impact, uh, that's, where, that's where you need to spend time. So what's that transition like going from executive to legislative and kind of back and forth? I actually found that I grew more respectful of each uh, branch's okay. power and understood how they should work together. I mean, this is, of course, the ideal. It's, it's, there is a, a, a scholar has uh, published a work on this who describes the what's called the invitation to struggle uh, between the two branches. And it really is embedded in the Constitution, power of the purse versus a, a commander-in-chief. Congress has the power to declare war. Uh, the president, uh, Congress actually has all sorts of powers in, uh, in, in, in international trade, which it has mostly delegated to the executive branch. So there really are struggles uh, for that supremacy built into the Constitution. Uh, but in the best case scenario, you have uh, cooperative uh, work. You have Congress working together with an executive branch to reinforce, to steer, to strengthen, to provide tools that the administration needs. And so when I would ever would make that uh, journey from one branch to the other, uh, I think I was a little bit smarter about how to work with colleagues on the other side of that divide uh, to actually get something done. So what are some of the greatest takeaways you've had from working in, the, in each respective field? I think uh, some of the greatest uh, takeaways I've had of just this national security career, uh, first of all, has been the importance of U.S. leadership uh, in international affairs. Uh, whenever big things need to be done, uh, in uh, international relations, whether it's uh, ceasefires and uh, ends to conflicts that have dragged on, or even when they're uh, short-term flare-ups. 
uh, when uh, alliances need to be uh, built up and sustained to deter uh, threats such as our uh, alliance with our NATO allies against the former Soviet Union and to this day uh, against some, some kinds of aggression from Russia or alliances in Asia with Japan and South Korea, uh, whether there are transnational uh, problems such as climate change uh, or uh, diseases or uh, other um, uh, crises like migration crises or terrorism crises. Uh, really, the big things uh, can only be accomplished when the United States is at the table and really exercising leadership. And so we have seen historically that when the United States is in a mode of wanting to provide that leadership, actually major things can be accomplished. Big institutions can be built, big alliances can be created and then sustained, uh, allies can be protected. Uh, at least we can make, uh, take serious steps towards solving some of these big, uh, big multinational problems. And when the United States is in more of a, uh, a, a retrenchment mode, uh, there are always waves of isolationist sentiment in American history, uh, we see these problems tend to fester. Uh, and we see other actors, often actors who certainly don't share our interests or our values, whether it's Russia, whether it's China, uh, become more assertive and more influential. And so I think one of the main takeaways uh, is that uh, the, United States leader, the United States leadership is crucial. We can't solve everything, and we also have to be aware of our limitations, but uh, very few big things get done unless the United States is showing leadership and at the table. Then I have a more kind of personalized lesson from my uh, experience as ambassador, and that was how much, how important it has become, especially in modern uh, diplomatic work, to connect not just with governments, but with publics. You know, the traditional model of an ambassador is they would be sent from Washington, they would mm -hmm. park themselves in an embassy, and their main contacts there would be the government officials the, yeah. in the ministries and in the, uh, in the halls of government of their, of their host uh, country. Um, and that was really the main uh, channel. Now, of course, with modern communications, Washington and that, form, that foreign capital are in direct contact all day through phone calls and through you know, travel and, and other types of uh, communication. But there's really only one part of the U.S. government that can engage a foreign public, and that is, an, that is a foreign embassy. Uh, and an ambassador uh, is the, the high-profile uh, representative at the, at the head of that institution. Uh, and that's more and more important today than it ever was. We all... Uh, live in a world today where every individual, every citizen of almost any country has, uh, holds within their hand a device that gives them access to a world of information and the ability to have their voice heard on a global scale with one click. And so if we are not engaging publics who have that kind of influence and that kind of appetite for information and that kind of uh, role in their own society's choices and their own government's choices, we're missing half the story. And so we, we prioritize during my time as ambassador in Tel Aviv uh, spending as much time with Israeli populations uh, throughout the country. And it's a very diverse country, although it's a very small country. Uh, so there were ultra-Orthodox Jewish Israelis, there were secular Israelis, there were Arab Israelis, there were Bedouin, there were Christian, Muslim. Uh, you could uh, go on and on and on. And I, I took it as a personal responsibility to spend time in each of these communities, really listening to them, helping them understand what uh, U.S. interests and goals were, and helping them find a way to participate in a constructive way, hopefully, in the U.S.-Israel partnership. Uh, so to me, that's a, that's a big takeaway, and it's maybe a, a big change in the way embassies and ambassadors function uh, over the last decade or so. Partial follow-up. So the Trump administration's recent decision to withdraw troops from northern Syria has been seeing a lot of backlash lately. This, like so many other major foreign policy decisions, appear to, appears to have been made with little strategic planning. 
So I'm wondering, what would the typical administrative process look like in making a, uh, making a major decision of this caliber? Well, in the Obama administration, which is where I have the most experience in that, uh, it would have involved a very intense and well-researched and highly uh, uh, staffed uh, uh, process to provide, uh, to, to first of all examine policy options. So you'd face a situation like uh, this, the fact that we have these troops in Syria, uh, that we have some conflicting interests perhaps. We have, of course, trying to avoid a conflict between Turkey and the Kurds of Syria, trying to sustain the progress we've made to defeat ISIS, trying to keep uh, Assad from regaining territory that Iran will use as a, a platform to embed weapons and threaten Israel, trying to limit Russian uh, influence uh, in that part of the world. And yet, of course, we have the conflicting uh, interest, perhaps, of we don't want this to be an open-ended uh, permanent deployment, and that's understandable. Certainly President Trump uh, has run on the uh, uh, ran for president on the principle that he was trying to end or at least limit Middle East military mm -hmm. deployments, in some ways not dissimilar from Obama. But uh, that, so that may have been a conflicting interest from, uh, from some of the other priorities. Uh, but what we would have certainly done is starting at a working level, senior director of the national, at the National Security Council with assistant secretaries from the Department of Defense and the Department of uh, State and the intelligence agencies, would have been to gather together uh, a working group uh, and then present uh, analysis and options uh, for uh, more senior officials. And that would work its way up to what's called the Deputies Committee, which are the deputies of all those departments okay. led by the Deputy National Security Advisor, and then eventually to the Principals Committee, which would be the, the Cabinet Secretaries, and ultimately uh, allow them to make recommendations to the President. Now, we would always try in, that, in the course of such a process to preserve as much decision space for the President as possible. And the, I think that's appropriate. Presidents shouldn't feel as though their own teams and their own staffs have um, have uh, kind of corralled them into having only one option. Presidents should have more than one option. You may have a strong recommendation of like one option is better than another, uh, but uh, it's important to preserve some decision space. So that would have been the typical process in the Obama administration. As far as I can tell, some of that occurred earlier in the Bush in the Trump administration and led to a decision that the right thing to do was to be to was to sustain. Uh, the U.S. presence uh, in northeastern Syria to finish the campaign against ISIS, to stand with Kurdish allies, to prevent Turkish and Syrian and Russian and Iranian uh, gains from taking place at the expense of our interests. And yet, twice, once last December uh, and then again uh, last month, President Trump, on almost a whim, uh, woke up or got off a telephone call, in this case, with Erdogan of Turkey and tweeted uh, that uh, the time had come to remove all the U.S. troops. And this was uh, completely at odds with the policy that had been developed, completely blindsided his own uh, officials, uh, certainly blindsided other allies like Israel, like Jordan, like the Kurds in Syria, and left everybody scrambling to try to make sense of what this was. Was it a real policy shift? Uh, how, could it, how should it be explained? How should we reassure allies who felt that their interests had been compromised by it? And so rather than being a kind of a bottom-up, well-researched, well-staffed effort, it was the exact opposite. It was a top-down, uh, paper-thin decision, mm -hmm. paper-thin in terms of what lay behind it, other than his own personal feelings, and then everybody else having to scramble to, to make sense of it and in some sense implement it. Um, it's chaos. Uh, it's serving our interests very poorly. It's certainly uh, leaving allies feeling that they have been uh, abandoned or that they can't count on 
sustained U.S. support and, and leadership. And it has worked to the benefit of the interests of several of our adversaries in the region. Sticking to current U.S. foreign policy, I saw just just a couple hours ago that the U.S. that the U.S. began the formal withdrawal process of the Paris Climate Agreement. What do actions like this, along with uh, redraw- withdrawing from the Iran nuclear deal, do to the U.S. foreign uh, foreign policy reputation and and how if it has been damaged to the point where we have to seriously look at what we're doing how can it be mended earlier i made the point that very few big problems are successfully tackled in the international arena without u.s leadership and these are two great examples and examples of where uh, a withdrawal of u.s leadership have uh, has has certainly harmed the the original causes but also created a kind of chaos and uh, and open, uh, open the doors for uh, uh, leadership by other much less uh, uh, positive actors. Uh, clearly, uh, President Trump has uh, been captured by the ideological uh, opponents of any sense that there is climate change and that humans are responsible for it and that we have any uh, responsibility uh, for the health of our planet uh, to act together with other nations to try to prevent it. And, has put all the emphasis on uh, the harm it would cause the U.S. economy and how it's unfair and other, act, other countries would, would gain advantage. Uh, one of his early acts of his presidency was to withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord. Uh, now, it's interesting that others, and China really is the, uh, the key example here, are actually proceeding with implementing their, uh, uh, their obligations under the Paris Climate Accord. So in a very topsy-turvy uh, way, China has now emerged as the um, more influential figure uh, in that whole international effort. Uh, but it clearly will not succeed, and clearly uh, all of us will suffer the consequences of uh, rising temperatures and rising oceans and, and all the other ways our climate is being impacted without uh, a strong and committed U.S. Uh, US role. Uh, I hope very much that uh, the future, the next administration, which I hope will be in just a little over a year, uh, will quickly return to that leadership role. Uh, Paris was only the beginning of a long process anyway. It was only to try to reset our, uh, our uh, uh, the, 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 only to try to limit uh, emissions within another couple of decades down to, down to uh, levels that could maybe slow the, the rise of temperatures, not even reverse the damage that's already been done. So there's much work left to be done, and that hopefully will fall to the next administration. But the Iran nuclear deal is another example. This was a case of a deal uh, struck by the United States with a very clear objective of buying as much time to postpone Uh, Iran's ability to achieve nuclear weapons. There were fair and reasonable criticisms of that deal, but once you have a deal like that, once the United States has worked with other partners, as we did with the Europeans, and in this case even the Russians and the Chinese, to stand behind an agreement like that, uh, it's quite costly to have the United States unilaterally pull out of the deal. Certainly Iran now feels that they are uh, released from their obligations, and in recent days they have been gradually uh, expanding their nuclear activities beyond what their uh, restrictions are under the deal. Um, And again, it leaves a very chaotic uh, situation behind. Will there be a new negotiation? Actually, President Trump says he wants to negotiate with the Iranians, 
But before, we negotiated together with five other nations. Uh, now it, he is proposing essentially a, a unilateral or bilateral negotiation between us and the Iranians. The Iranians are saying they're not interested. We've already seen what he's been able to achieve or not achieve in his uh, attempt to negotiate with North Korea. It leaves uh, a, a very chaotic situation and a much more likely path for Iran to be much closer to a nuclear weapon much sooner than it would have been uh, under the deal. Administrations have the right to have differences from their predecessors and change policies, but when it's done in this very haphazard way, when it's done without consultation with allies, when it's done without uh, a, an alternative plan, uh, what's the plan B? What's the alternative deal or alternative arrangement uh, to the Iran nuclear deal? Is it regime change? We can't implement that ourselves. Are the United States going to attack Iran? I don't see President Trump attacking Iran. Uh, he can't get them into negotiation. If, if he did, what's he trying to negotiate? So without uh, that kind of forethought, without that kind of uh, consultation with other interested parties, uh, we leave behind a great deal of chaos. I grew up in rural Wisconsin. And during that process, and even now as a student, I can sometimes struggle to see how domestic policies affect my daily life. What do you say to people like myself and everyone else who can, who can sometimes struggle seeing how foreign international policy affects them? It's a fair question. Uh, and not everybody will feel the impact of uh, American foreign policy in their daily life. Uh, and uh, those of us who are deeply immersed in it may overweight, uh, at least as our citizen, our fellow citizens feel it, the impact of what I would characterize as the loss of U.S. leadership or the failure to consult with allies or, uh, or the, the, the weakening of international agreements uh, that the United States has sponsored. Uh, nevertheless, I do think uh, over our history uh, we have seen uh, a repeated uh, pattern of when the United States is in that more retrenched uh, posture uh, and when uh, we give in to our isolationist impulses. Uh, first of all, uh, often it allows conflicts or it allows enemies uh, to uh, strengthen uh, and allows conflicts to fester, which eventually the United States is drawn back to. Uh, and so for those who uh, have members of their family who serve in the military or who uh, understand the costs, just uh, if it's not on a personal basis, the, the, the financial costs involved in deploying our militaries into uh, conflict zones, uh, so there's both blood and treasure at, at risk there. Uh, the pattern has been that when we are less engaged internationally, it doesn't mean we always have to be there with a military footprint. That's usually a last resort. But if we aren't reasonably engaged, eventually we will be, and we will be at higher cost and in a less, less advantageous circumstances, and we will pay, pay rather dearly for it. Uh, I think uh, our, we've also seen uh, how our isolationist impulses tend to uh, harm uh, the U.S. economy. Uh, it's definitely uh, been beneficial for the United States to be a leader of free trade agreements, to be a leader of trying to promote reform and democratization and free markets in, uh, in other countries, sometimes through our U.S. assistance programs that promote those things. Uh, and when we have been successful, uh, it has very frequently opened the door to a much 
uh, a much more advantageous set of trade relationships with, uh, with other countries. Uh, and that's something that um, uh, benefits our, our citizens. And then when you go to these uh, broad uh, transnational problems, climate change is one of them. Certainly we all, in some respect, feel the impact uh, of the warming planet, uh, whether it's by different cycles of uh, crop growth or, mm -hmm. or wildlife that is, uh, that is impacted or, or moving out of its traditional uh, zones of habitation into, into, into other areas to keep away from the warming climate. Uh, whether it's terrorism, which came to our shores uh, uh, in September 11th, 2001. It was one of the more uh, influential uh, events of my life was the 9-11 attacks. I was early in my career, but it certainly redoubled uh, my understanding that if we are not uh, leaders in preventing conflicts and preventing the rise of extremist movements and building up partnerships with uh, more moderate uh, allies in the Middle East and elsewhere, eventually those threats can come e even to our own shores. Uh, whether it's the spread of diseases, uh, which, uh, again, without U.S. leadership might uh, not remain at some distant uh, uh, country across the ocean, but might uh, find its way uh, to, our, uh, to our shores as well. Uh, those are aspects of U.S. foreign policy leadership as well. It certainly uh, takes, I think, uh, the leadership from the president, leadership from members of Congress to articulate this and to educate the citizenry about it, but there's uh, civic leadership, uh, whether it's in the business community, whether it's in religious communities, whether it's in uh, 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 military com communities or communities where the military is present, I think also to try to, to make this case to, to the American people that uh, we are more, we are safer, we are more prosperous, uh, we are better positioned to deal with crises or even prevent crises from occurring if we have that kind of uh, forward-leaning foreign policy leadership. So briefly, what, did you find it difficult at all to balance life and ambassadorship? Because you have you have a family, correct? Yes. So, so was there any difficulty there? It was a challenge. Uh, we moved to Israel in 2011 with three children, three daughters, ages 11, 6, and 4. Uh, and in Washington, I had been a congressional staffer and a staffer on the National Security Council, and that's a, those are fairly low-profile, behind-the-scenes kind of roles. Uh, didn't really have a significant impact on family life other than, you know, the long hours that I worked. Um, and suddenly we were thrust into a, a, a very public role as a family, not just me alone. We were sent to live in a very large, prominent house uh, in, in Israel, which is the site of many gatherings of uh, the most prominent people in Israeli society. Uh, around that house stood guards, and any time I ventured out of it, I had bodyguards with me. Uh, there were staff in the house that took care of us. Um, and, of course, how others see you suddenly uh, changes. Uh, and we were a family very much in the public eye. People saw us. Uh, the younger girls, our six- and four-year-old at the time, uh, loved it. They couldn't get enough attention, and they were very cute, and people made a big fuss over them. Our 11-year-old couldn't have been more miserable. Uh, <laughs> you know, nothing worse than being the ambassador's daughter when you just want to be a normal kid mm -hmm. and blend in. Uh, so it was pretty tough for her. Um, and, but, it, so, but I found that it was very important for me uh, while, you know, spending time with prime ministers and, 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 and other, you know, very prominent people uh, to make sure that I had those touch points uh, of my old and less, uh, less uh, highfalutin lifestyle. Uh, first of all, that started with the kids. When we got there, we told our bodyguards um, that although they had to figure out a way to 
you know, protect us wherever we went. We were going to do the things normal families with kids did. We were going to go to the park and go to the beach and go to the museums and, you know, uh, go out mm -hmm. for walks and eat in restaurants together. And we needed to work with them to figure out a way to do all those sort of very normal family activities and still be protected in the way that, uh, uh, that uh, the role required. Um, I found that it was very important for me to get out of the physical car you know, you ride around in a big uh, bulletproof windowed SUV and in a city like Tel Aviv, which is a beautiful city of cafes and beaches and parks, uh, you feel like you're in a cage watching this uh, city go by, but you're not really in it. You can't breathe it, smell it, touch mm -hmm, it. Yeah. Uh, so I said to my uh, bodyguards one day, can I bike to work? And they said, what? <laughs> and I said, yeah, can I bike to work? I need the exercise. But more than that, I need the air. I need to feel like I'm in this city, which I'm living in, rather than watching it through a window. Um, they weren't very happy about it, but they came up with some protocols and we worked it out. I don't know that I reduced my carbon footprint very much because the car had to follow <laughs> yeah, us and yeah. the advanced car had to go ahead of us. But never mind, there were two or three of us on a bike path and I, it, it was very, very good for my mental health to, uh, uh, to feel like on that 45-minute ride from the home to the office like I was just a normal person uh, commuting to work that way. And then the last piece was, was really making sure we found friends who uh, we interacted with as a normal family, uh, mostly through a synagogue that we got involved in. Uh, people who, the first time they met us, they made a fuss, Ambassador Shapiro and his family, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And within a few weeks, it was Dan and Julie and the girls by their names. And uh, we really tried to make sure we spent time with people who didn't relate to us uh, yeah. in the formal way. So any quick bits of advice you would have for students who are looking to enter public service? Uh, first of all, I'm a huge fan of public service, and I uh, have great respect for those who uh, choose that path. It wasn't my initial uh, path, actually. I, I uh, was originally going to get a Ph.D. in history. Uh, I do come from a family of academics, and uh, while I was sort of politically aware, as I mentioned earlier, it, I was sort of pulled in that direction. And then I ended up uh, doing an internship with the State Department uh, after my first year of graduate school. And I uh, was sent to the United Arab Emirates, our embassy and our consulate there. And it was a year after the first Gulf War and a lot of very interesting Gulf security issues. And I really started to, to think about how the tools of government can be used to make our country safer, to work with our allies, to help U.S. citizens. Uh, so in a foreign policy context, that was my uh, moment of, uh, of the, the switch flipping. Uh, for other people, it may be on, on, mm -hmm. on domestic issues. But it, it, it is a very noble uh, uh, calling. Um, and but should be, a, uh, I think, uh, uh, pursued, uh, as President Obama always used to uh, tell us in, in his administration, uh, with a great deal of dedication to the public part of public service. Yeah. We are there in those roles. Certainly they can be exciting and you're maybe dealing with issues in the news and so forth and politics, but you are really there to serve the public and those words really matter. And uh, that means you have to uh, put in the work and really be dedicated. There's no uh, phoning it in uh, because uh, your boss or your fellow citizens. Uh, it means you have to be ethical. We have some serious problems with that in the current administration, yeah, but yeah. it means you have to take seriously your responsibility to do things uh, as well as you can, but also to do them the right way. Um, and uh, those who do and who decide that the tools of, of government service, or there are also forms of public service that are outside of government, whether it's advocacy or whether it's you know, maybe you might put journalism in that, uh, uh, in, in that, in that category. 
anything that um, uh, helps and keep our uh, other fellow citizens better informed, uh, more uh, healthier, safer, uh, more productive, uh, solve the problems that affect people's lives, uh, that is really a, a very noble thing to do. So I'm, I'm strongly encouraging of it. I think uh, uh, there are many opportunities to go spend time, as I did, doing internships uh, in government uh, offices, whether it's in Washington, whether it's here in Madison, uh, or whether it's in other state capitals. Uh, there are many non-governmental organizations that, that also work in that world. So I definitely encourage students who are thinking in those terms to try out some of those opportunities before making a a, a commitment or, or figuring out exactly what direction they'll go to pursue them. All right, we're just going to finish up with some quick hitter questions. Okay. So New York style or Chicago deep dish pizza? Well, uh, so I'm tempted to answer, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to give a long answer, I'm tempted to answer that uh, there's no such thing as bad pizza. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, and at my age, you know, you have to be very selective about uh, when it's worth uh, consuming those calories. Uh, for me, as a Midwestern boy, if I'm going to do it, it's going to be Chicago deep dish. Okay. <laughs> President Clinton or President Obama? Uh, well, I worked for both of them, but I, I knew President Obama much better. I was much younger in the Clinton administration. And, uh, you know, I, I certainly appreciate President Clinton. He was a, uh, I, I think, a very good president, did a lot of good things. But there was a lot of drama attached to him. Yeah. He was impeached, of yeah. course, including yeah. for some things that, uh, that don't, don't uh, uh, bring honor to him. He did many other good things. But there was always something about that administration that was a little bit... Uh, uh, on a on a tightrope, mm. uh, President Obama. While you know many dramatic things happened, and and certainly there were dramatic politics around his uh, administration, uh, really lived up to his uh, uh, his nickname, No Drama Obama. Mm -hmm. uh, he was so focused on doing the work, and uh, there wasn't a hint of scandal in that administration, uh, and that appealed to me very much. Uh, yeah. Somebody who who didn't take himself too seriously, but took the job extremely seriously. Coffee or tea. Uh, I became a coffee drinker in Israel. I used to get all my caffeine from diet sodas and uh, got to Israel and it wasn't enough anymore. I, yeah. needed, I needed something stronger. So light or, light or dark roast? Uh, dark roast. Okay. <laughs> the more caffeine, the better. If someone was going to play you in a biopic <laughs> in a movie, who would you have? Who would well, be your first choice? Well, you know, there was a day uh, when early in the Twitter era when yeah. I was uh, and I was an active user of Twitter uh, as an ambassador when uh, everyone was putting up doppelgangers. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I found a picture of a of a Ben Affleck wearing a oh. goatee, and I decided okay. to I decided to convince myself just for the purposes of that 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 he was my doppelganger. I'm a little bit generous, perhaps, but uh, uh, I'd, I'd take I'd take Ben Affleck. Okay, Wisconsin <laughs> or Illinois? Well, you know we don't we Illini fans don't usually get bragging rights, but uh, <laughs> I hate to bring up a sore subject, but I think this fall we get them. Uh, so homegrown uh, Illinois. I did spend all or parts of 12 summers in Oconomowoc, Wisconsin, okay. a great summer camp. So very, very partial to, uh, to the Badger State. Definitely. Well, Ambassador Shapiro, thank you for spending your time with us today. It was a pleasure. With pleasure. Thank you, Mike. Hope to do it again. This is where I come from.